Hello everyone and welcome along to another edition of the podcast. Appreciate you hitting on the button once again. This is, I guess, going to be theoretically a creative podcast, a business podcast, but it's going to be a good thread of sport after speaking to our guest on the phone with that, a great chat. It is Miles Dunkley, who's the CEO and Chief Creative Officer of SLG, which is a Yes, a fast expanding company in the, the heart of, of Cheltenham Town, Miles. You're, you're a Gloucester man yourself, but just tell us a little bit about the company rather than me mm-hmm. trying to describe it because it's been a, an evolution. Well, it has, and, and, and that actually, we, we're, we're, we're 35 years old, or I, I say 35 years young, really, because uh, the company was founded in the mid 80s by my mum and my dad. Uh, they built a, a business manufacturing um, cosmetic applicators, makeup sponges, essentially. Um, quite niche. Uh, I, I joined the company about 20 years ago. I, my career was in was in design industry, packaging design, brand identity, mm. creative industry really. Uh, and I joined up and really the company has kind of, I think, uh, manifested itself now today into more what the industry I left <laughs> than the business my parents started 35 years ago. So what we do, we design, we develop, uh, we market, we build, we distribute beauty brands and male grooming brands, uh, very much targeted towards young consumers, Gen Z, millennial, and all, always with a sort of fashion edge and that kind of cool, funky vibe. That's kind of SLG. But yeah, cool, funky vibe. And if you do hear any rustling, we have to apologise because we sat on bean bags in the, the chilli bean room, which is, is very atmospheric. We've got lamps hanging down from the, the ceiling. We've got great views actually out of a window here and hammocks inside as well, kind of soft tones. But this is all part of the revolution of SLG, hasn't it? I think you've taken on possibly from your your father as this design age not only in what you're doing but in how you're living and working now yeah absolutely i think what what's happened we've recently moved into this new premises studio 19 at the brewery quarter where we undertook quite an ambitious um uh, interior design project to accommodate the company Mm. 100 people up to 120 with the freelance crew uh, and being a design-led business and one that puts creativity at really the heart of what we do, we felt that our offices and our workspace should sort of reflect that mm. uh, visually. Um, and so we've deployed a lot of kind of creative ideas in the execution of this, uh, this office space. And we, well, we met at the Child and Wellbeing Festival, which you were chief sponsor of, of that as well, which mm. was fascinating. But part of the revolution here is you know, it's full of kind of American themes. You've got the skateboards on the wall, you've got mm. the booths, the diner, the bleachers, which for people who, uh, who aren't familiar with American sport is where you know, the stands where, where uh, people watch American sport from, where you have your, your big kind of uh, symposiums and meetings. And we had the, the wellbeing event as well. But a big part of this was to make people feel good at work, wasn't it? It was. I think as a company, we've always um, regarded our staff as being the key the key asset of the company. And, and, but what we were able to do here was really to explore lots of kind of well-being notions in the execution of this office. And it became a sort of um, viral thing for us really, because as we started to think about an office space as a place for people to enjoy, to be motivated in, to feel good in, we, we, we found lots of ideas breaking free. Mm. We also were lucky we had an awful, awfully huge space to, to, to play out some of those ideas. 27,000 square feet or something. Yeah, right? I yeah. mean the whole is over that actually. We, we, we subcontract 7,000 to uh, a, a community workspace project but the, the actual office that we occupy presently is, is 27,000 square feet 
actually the biggest open plan office space in the southwest of England, I have been told. Wow. So we're very proud of that. But um, yeah, so, so we, we, we saw, I wouldn't say we discovered well-being on the journey of creating Studio 19, but we certainly became very conscious of it and started to um, adopt a lot of ideas that mm. would be about staff, staff well-being. And in fact, we discovered things along the way, like biophilia, which yeah. uh, is the, uh, the innate human uh, sort of a tendency to, to want to be near nature and natural things. So plants um, are everywhere. <laughs> tropical tropical plants as well, aren't they? Exotic. Well, yeah, yeah, and in fact, the tropical nature of the plants was quite key because what we were trying to do there was to create a sense of escapism, possibly. Big leafy plants that one might find on a holiday mm. uh, and to, uh, I think, create a different sort of world uh, atmosphere when, when one walks into this uh, particular premises. Yeah, it's interesting that plants came out of it, that feeling of, of well-being that's connected to, to nature, but also I know that Ben Shannon, the architect, was on the panel with us and he's done a lot with mental health and, and well-being and, and aspects of architecture. He mm. immediately noticed the uh, kind of floor-to-ceiling 20-foot, 30-foot windows you've got in here, which even on a grey October's day today is letting in an enormous amount of daylight, which not only is it said to be better for your general mood state, but also sleep and things like that, which is a key part of, I guess, your, your staff's performance. Yeah, we're very lucky with this space. Um, almost half of it is, is, is full height windows. I mean, it's tremendous. And um, that natural light, that's part of the biophilia, the kind of connection with nature mm. and natural things. Well, so plants need it as well, which we're plants part of nature as well, well, I suppose. That's interesting, yeah. Absolutely. So we get these, these wonderful sunny days where the light casts through beautifully. Um, and even on dull days, it's still really bright. Yeah, I think that's 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 a wonderful thing. We're lucky to have that. Yeah, and we make best use of it. Yeah, I can definitely imagine appreciating that because I'm in four or five hours broadcasting in a studio without any daylight, which is kind of a leveler for whoever's on watch shift because there's no daylight either way. So it it can feel like a graveyard shift. But I noticed that profoundly that you know need to get outside after you've been in a in a room with no daylight. I've experienced that when I was employed before I was in the family company. I worked in some mm. very dingy offices, actually. I wasn't very conscious of the fact they were dingy. I just recall feeling dingy and down yeah. myself to some extent. Uh, and then as we started to explore over the years um, our own offices of the of SLG, we kind of opened up a little bit to that kind of idea of uh, light, and my previous office definitely had that. And mm. this has it in abundance, and it's, it's really uplifting. It's wonderful, actually. Yeah, something came out of the Wellbeing Festival for me was almost the perception. Like, we wonder why certain people don't exercise or don't do that. But sometimes you think people are in a state of not being very well, that they're not aware of the effect. Like you say, being in a dingy office, maybe it's something kind of subconscious that you think just feel a bit bit under the weather and a bit dreary. I'm absolutely sure that's the case. We're also lucky because we're ne our next door neighbour here, but one, is uh, a gymnasium, a gym. And so our staff, we oh. have, a, we have a, a discount with the gym, DW, and, and, and so our, we're actively encouraging our staff to participate in exercise. Um, we have showers in the bathrooms here. At Studio 19 as well, so anyone wants to... And quite the bathroom as well, you've got your hair gel in there as well. And We've got all the products, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're a beauty company in male grooming, so we would, you know, I guess it would be only right that we would make our products available. We've got Dyson hair dryers and hair straighteners for the ladies as well. So we, 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 we're all in on that kind of aspect. Uh, the showers as well and 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 we've also um used the the sort of event space which mm. has the bleacher stand in it uh for yoga on a thursday which is a complimentary offer from slg for all staff do you do yoga, if you've done yoga? I, I do but i actually don't do the one at slg because i wonder how many 
particularly the females, perhaps want their CEO in like in a leotard <laughs> uh, or something. Yeah, so I, I, I do Pilates actually, but I do that more privately uh, off grid yeah. uh, in my own home. <laughs> that, dynamic, well, that dynamic leadership is interesting because you're aware of that. And I know as a sports broadcaster, that's always an interesting dynamic, particularly um, say in management when assistant coaches who go between the managers mm. and the players who have a relationship with both suddenly get catapulted to that top role mm. that they then have to maybe create a distance or an awareness of how they can affect being around people might you know put them off being able to relax sometimes if you know the boss is, is there and it's interesting because obviously well-being was where we connected but chatting the other day in, in this podcast is called sport and life and it can be other topics outside of sport but it's often how many times is a sport thread to it particularly in, in business and and how you know people who are business leaders have had sometimes a background in sport and yours as well as I think the American themes we hear was skateboarding was it was a big rugby part of, of growing up, wasn't it? Was that, was a, that yeah. was a thread of, of your well, youth. It was, although it started with football, really. My dad mm. was a massive, keen football player, played a lot of football, semi-professional, Gloucester City and Brentford. Uh, so I grew, grew up in a football household. It was only when I went to, uh, got to age 12 at school where we started playing rugby rather than football that I, I became really a rugby guy, I mm. guess. Uh, and also, I, I, I feel kind of privileged. I was born uh, half a mile from King's home. Uh, I could hear the shed from my garden, and I feel that's the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, being a Cockney. And I hear By West Ham, or yeah. yeah that's yeah. it, yeah. W- within, within earshot of the sheds, you're a proper Gloucester guy. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to play, well, I say play, I was selected for Gloucester Colts, played one game against Richmond. Uh, on the bench I didn't get on but what position did you play as a rugby well, player well I played any, anywhere in the back line to be honest uh, uh, okay. fly half when the team wasn't so good and on the wing when the team was, <laughs> was really good but they're kind of the brains of the team, like the fly half and the scrum half, the axis, aren't they? It, it is. I think it's a very creative role there, and I kind of I, I like the artistry of, of fly half. But uh, but but when I was amongst really good players, I tended to get pushed out on the wing uh, uh, or yeah. fall back, something like that. But uh, but yeah, so so I sort of grew up with football. My my dad, who was a great entrepreneur, uh, um, adopted entrepreneurial kind of uh, approaches to to running the first football team I played in, which he, he, he set up. Yeah, um, and what positions did you play in football? Sure. Well, I was, I was a centre-half uh, in football. Uh-huh. Um, as I got older in my adult life, when I had a last f- uh, sort of foray with football in my, in my, my late 20s, early 30s, I, I, I went into midfield. Started running things. Yeah. A, a sort of Jan Molby just stood there, you know, <laughs> hoping the game well, came very... to him rather than the other way around. Well, that's the Jan who's a wonderful player, but you're very svelte, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't have much of an engine. I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I tended to to hold my position, let's say that much. Yeah, Jan's remarkable actually. Think about sort of the modern era of sports science, how kind of big he was, but obviously worked for for him in in terms mm. of performance. I suppose that's the thing is that people of all sizes, particularly in football, kind of uh, work. And it was it was through there you met a, a leader and a former Scotland international, wasn't it? Your coach at, at school mm. with rugby, mm. and that's interesting because for me growing up, I was at school when the professional era came in. But before that, and it's not to deride the guys that are now going to professional rugby at eighteen without life experiences, but what you find from the former generation, people like when I was a kid, Brian Moore, Will Carling, Rory Underwood. Rory Underwood was in the RAF. They all had jobs and, and, and uh, Brian Moore was a barrister. So there's, there's a kind of, I guess, a depth to their roundedness and, and how they could articulate the, the importance of sport, wasn't it? But you had an influence like that from, from a person who, who had top honours but also was a, was a teacher. That's right. In fact, um, I, I've, 
I've uh, learnt an awful lot from the coaches as a young boy who coached me, my dad being the first one actually, uh, as I say he was the coach of the under 12s football team that he put together and then um, at, at school in rugby it was a chap called John Simonet who uh, was the head of games, he mm. was a Gloucester player, uh, number 8 uh, and also a, in a Scotland international. So and he he was a he was a big number eight. He was a a, a, a big character. Physical, yeah. His nickname was Psycho, and that's a pleasure <laughs> thing you need to know. But everybody respected him, um, listened, and hung on every word that he said. He's done public speaking, isn't he? I believe is that. Yes, right? that's yeah. what he went on to do. Funny enough, yeah. he, he he left. Uh, he was a biology teacher as well as uh, as games and, and rugby in particular, obviously. But uh, he went on to become a, a, a close uh, quarter magician. And a public speaker, so that's an unusual transition yeah. from rugby player to teacher to entertainer. Such a commitment, though, isn't it? When you think about it now, to you know, mm-hmm. we think about kind of having a job and, and commitments, but having a job and being a pretty much full time athlete at a really high level is, is that's complex right. at that time. Uh, absolutely. Another a twist to that story was that he, he left King's School to pursue this career in entertainment. My mother was a major um, catalyst for that because she ran an entertainment agency in London at the time and she got him his first job outside of working for uh, at the school as a magician on the very first Virgin Atlantic airline flights. Wow. Yeah, when they only had one aeroplane and yeah. he was on there doing magic tricks during the flights. It's so gl- especially how glamorous it was in the, yeah. the initial days. I still remember in the 80s, 90s, we lived in the West Indies and Virgin having the backpacks and the paraphernalia. Mm. It was yeah. quite glamorous, wasn't it? Oh, it was in, yeah. in the early days. I think it's probably <laughs> less so now, but certainly back then. Yeah, yeah magicians, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. What did you think you picked up from, from rugby and playing sport, which perhaps has, has helped you as a, as a leader and, and a team member as well? Well, I think I'd look to the coaches really and, and, and reflect back on, on how they were. My dad, I, I say, uh, under 12, he put together a team. Uh, he, he led the team. Uh, he, was, um, he taught me a lot about how to assemble a group of people and get them uh, functioning. He taught me a lot about um, celebrating uh, success collectively mm. and individually. He used to have a thing where the player, the man of the match, would uh, be given a tube, a pack of Rolos uh, <laughs> and would be allowed to sit in the front of the, uh, the, the car we all used to travel around in because he used to somehow get 10, 12 yeah. players in the Ford Granada estate. <laughs> Very illegally, probably, but the front passenger seat was reserved for the man of the match. Yeah, there were no rules about seatbelts and stuff in those There days. wasn't, no, yeah. and, and there were, seemed to be very little rules about anything when I reflect back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so uh, that kind of thing. He then, we were a very bad team in the beginning, and then uh, we got better and better, and he, he demonstrated entrepreneurial skills, I feel, by... Uh, picking better players as the season went by. He kind of assembled a sort of Real Madrid Galacticos in the end by the time we got to under-14s. So he taught me something there about a constant improvement, um, obviously celebrating success of individuals, but also the team as well. My, uh, my rugby coach, uh, John Simonet, was a very different uh, sort of a coach. Um, he was very uh, black and white, very strong in his messaging to us, yeah. but in a way that brought us all on board. We understood the system, we understood the task, and we were very motivated to implement that task. And I think in terms of how I am as a CEO, both my dad 
uh, and my games teacher inform how I am, mm. or at least try to be as a CEO. It's interesting because speaking to Michael Duff, who's the manager of Cheltenham Town now, but was a player under Sean Dyche with Burnley and went all the way up the ranks as a professional mm. footballer. He talks about having you know no nonsense and DBSing football players mm. in a way correcting you know collective standard, no favourites. But I suppose within that, it's similar to probably working here with your creative industry partly. You want that collective sort of equality, but then you also want to have people the freedom to have individual flair as you would in a, a rugby game, particularly a fly half or something like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, that's a great analogy, isn't it? Um, your, your company team to the football team and how you want them to play. Mm. And I think uh, SLG being a very creative team, we, we want to allow individuals to express, we want them to do a metaphorical overhead kick, back heel <laughs> or whatever it is, step over uh, without a shadow of a doubt because that's the kind of company we are. But that probably wouldn't work in all businesses where uh, a, a probably more workmanlike approach is what is required. Yes. And, and the, four, you know, the, the players that are, are brought on board reflect that. Yeah, we wonder sometimes we still have vestiges in, in every workplace of the sort of industrial area, don't we? Almost clocking in and out of a factory and we mm-hmm. expect our staff to deliver sort of eight hours of solid work. But when you are in more cerebral creative environment it has to be a slightly different approach isn't it it does although actually i I would i would count that by saying that there's still a discipline required in any kind of team Mm. sport um club or or, or company there's a sort of rigor that has to be holding everything together within which creativity can be allowed to flourish or or um uh, other attributes according to the person too much of a maverick who comes in once a week and well uh, that's right or yeah just complacency about timekeeping so there is an undercurrent of kind of rigor within within again that that would i reflect back to my dad (laughs) as a coach and my uh my games teacher at school as a coach both of which there was discipline always one thing that's in sport and we know this as kids growing up learning it we learn to walk and then we learn to try and play a sport for example and, and you will talk about your dad and it resonated with about his entrepreneurship and mm. a he was completely risk averse and you wonder mm. if he had this explorer's gene that mm. john hudson was talking about because people speculated that the sort of people who explore an adventurer in modern manifestation often that can be entrepreneurial because you're not worried about risk as much as other people normally would look at the worst case scenario but he did that for a while till he got his success which led to slg mm. which is almost allied to sport isn't it because you now, when you first play anything, you're, you tend to be rubbish, which is a sort of misconception because we always imagine that the best are sort of innately born like that. Yes, absolutely. I think the, th- the thing is that, that, that um, curiosity of what is possible, um, a, a mindset toward um, what exists beyond what you know um, is very important both in business and in sports. So my, my father in business, uh, I grew up in a house where my father, the, the, the business, the family business was at home. He was basically my dad, really. He was mm. a sort of, I describe him as a, a sort of a global Dow boy back in the day. <laughs> he used to buy and sell stuff from all over the world to other countries in the world. Something from England that would sell to Nigeria, something from the Middle East that he'd import into the UK and everything in between. So you make a little bit of money on each item. and Everything, yeah, yeah deals being cut everywhere. And always uh, um, to pay for the next thing. I mean, he was quite hand-to-mouth. Mm. He was prolific and it was corned beef, um, tyres, uh, beauty products, uh, we, we, uh, heraldic art. I, I mean, you name it, my dad <laughs> traded it. It didn't really matter to him as long as he, he could buy it for X and sell it for X times two, and that was all that mattered, really. Um, and maybe in, in, in terms of sport and playing that into sport, you know, that player that, 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 that seeks out the pass, the killer pass, 
is the same person that might be that entrepreneur. Yeah, so you have to, you have to miss a few before you yeah. nail, nail that one, yeah. Yeah, and get over the fact you got you did fail a few times and, and, and then the greater good comes from that. Yeah, because a lot of us carry those failures around, don't they, and impact the future stuff, whereas obviously your dad was able to just wipe the slate clean and, and crack on. But your mum must have been supportive in that and she was influential in the breakthrough for herself, wasn't she, which was makeup applicators because I presume your dad wasn't necessarily a specialist in that. It was a great husband and wife moment that, you know, my dad was the uh, was the business entrepreneur. My 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 mum was very entrepreneurial too and he she used to travel around the world with him to trade fairs, mm. spotting out products that could be interesting to import into the UK or indeed might trigger an idea for something made in the UK. And uh, that is what happened with the makeup sponge. My mum saw this particular makeup sponge she said, this is, this is going to be big. Um, my dad said, oh, really? And she said, yes, trust me on this. And, and, and that moment led to this company we have today, really. So my dad set about uh, creating that uh, product in the UK, manufacturing the same thing that he'd seen at a trade fair in America, I think it was. Uh, and, and that gave birth to, to a company that actually had a longevity because everything prior to that had been individual Transactional, uh, transactional yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know quite eclectic <laughs> and this seeded and it, it, it embedded we've got the company got listings at Boots I think was the first one uh, and that created ongoing business and the company with a long term future was born and then for you you had the dynamic of ultimately working under your dad you had adversity as well to deal with you said to, to me on the, in the past that you were sort of unemployed and what has that taught you about uh, I talk about having children as well in terms of building your empathy but did that build a lot of empathy for, for people here who maybe had difficult times in their past because often nowadays with social media we're looking for manicured CVs and, and histories aren't we sometimes yes absolutely I, I left school at 16 I didn't do A levels or university I went to, to work I, I worked for 10 years or actually no about 8 years and I went Travelling, I thought, yeah, mm. I'm gonna. There was some recession at the time in the UK, and I and I, and I went travelling. I came back from travelling, and I, I just imagined that I would walk straight into a job, and it was a very humbling experience to find myself out of work for a number of months, uh, and then realising that I was uh, I could sign on the doll, uh, which I didn't ever think was for people like me from a reasonably comfortable middle class background, mm. and I somewhat reluctantly did that. I need I only received a couple of months. Um, of, of that sort of benefit. I never felt comfortable with it actually. But what it did teach me was not to be complacent about um, uh, uh, success. The journey to success is, yeah. is fraught with um, hiccups and, uh, and it, made, it was a humbling experience. And since then, I've, I've always remembered that. I, I, and, and anyone who comes to an interview at SLG that, that, that doesn't have A-levels, doesn't have a degree, or had a period of unemployment, mm. doesn't really matter to us, because uh, it, it, it could actually be one of their greatest learning experiences and yeah. seen as, should be seen perhaps as a benefit. Yeah, often we talk about difficult communities as well. They have sort of slight skirmishes with the law, potentially, things like that, but that was all part of the growing up. I work with a lot of boxers, and it's almost inevitable to to survive they have to to be in those sort of circles sometimes and it's treating people as we talked about here and now as they are rather than what they were yeah absolutely of course you need to have an awareness of where people have come from what's occurred but mm. um it can very easily be misread something a blot on the on the copy but in the past uh when actually it could be seen as a as a, as a positive really i think most of our our board of directors um i think over half um don't have a degree between us <laughs> uh, and we have those that do obviously yeah. well i think it's swinging back the other way now isn't it because it was almost in, in sort of like you're a decade older than me but when i was at going to university there was a s small fees but it wasn't 
is it anywhere near like nine thousand pounds? I think it is year now. It's a mm. big decision. Whereas even in your generation, it was there were grants and things like that, weren't there? But I think it was probably rare. But maybe it's swinging back the other way where people are having to evaluate whether it's you know quote unquote worth going to university. That's right. The rise of apprenticeships, you know, and and, and what have you. And we we have three sons, um, 18, 17, 14, So we're right in the midst of all yes. of that. Uh, and my opinion is that they don't need to go to university necessarily as long as they've got a clear plan of what they do want to do instead mm. of. Uh, my wife's a little bit more academically orientated and feels that university is probably, um, the, should be the default more. But uh, we're, we're playing through, my, my eldest is on a gap year, so he's kind of straddling oh, really? between... Is he, gone, is he going away? He, he, he is in Nepal as we speak, he, took, he arrived yesterday. So he, he's having that gap year. How, how are you finding that? So, oh, is it you well, want a lot of worry? I'm not terribly worried because he, 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 he's a very self-sufficient chap. Um, he's, uh, he's very well-travelled, actually, for a youngster. He's been on, his grandparents are Italian, so he's spent a lot of time travelling backwards and forwards to Italy on his own mm. when he was younger. So it's, uh, he's fine. So, no, I don't really worry too much, but <laughs> I do miss him, uh, that's for sure. And that's interesting because you've, you've had one of your sons. Is it the same son for work experience? Is that the... Well, Both have been, uh, but yeah. Luca was here for five weeks you, just before he left. Yeah. The dynamic of not only coaching your kids' teams, being your dad's player at one point, then working for your dad and trying to kick on with the company, that's been a, a complex picture which people probably, even working with some people who work with their wives or husbands, how have you handled that dynamic of, of home and, and workplace? Yeah, so both my, my, my sons have done work experience at SLG in, in the last few months, Luca particularly for five or six weeks. Um, absolutely fine. Um, I, I, don't, I wonder whether there's a honeymoon period whereby everything's <laughs> working really great in that respect. You know, we walk in together, we chat about work on the way in, he does his work. We don't actually work together during uh, those periods. And then we have lunch together and then we walk home together yeah. and we chat about the day and... and there's a huge thirst for knowledge from both my sons about the company. Mm. Uh, now they've experienced working with it. There's a, uh, so it's actually been very, very functional. How that might manifest if they were ever to work full time, different thing. Yeah. And I think it would be very incumbent on me, as it was with my father to myself, to give them the space to be themselves and not to be a father to them in the office hmm. uh, at all and, and uh, yes I learned an awful lot when I joined the family business my dad literally the first day I walked in he, he sort of walked out with his golf clubs on his shoulder and said, gave me some keys and said good luck uh, you know I think he don't F it up he might have said <laughs> but uh, he left me to it you have to be comfortable with micro failures to play golf from my limited experience with that to be fair but it's interesting you, you, you coach your boys at, at hockey as well I suppose it's that dynamic when you've done well and you've built a big company and it's just wanting them to, if they're part of it, to earn it and not feel, uh, to have the same sort of drive, I suppose, that you had going through that period of being unemployed in the, the sort of early stages of SLG where maybe it wasn't as established. Yes, that, that, that's right. I mean, I, I, when I joined the, the family business, it was quite small. It was 700,000 turnover, I think, and, and we had about 25, 30 employees. And there was only four of us in the office, which was myself, mm. my dad, my dad's partner, Pat. Uh, he was a sort of financial director and, and a, a, a secretary called Dawn. It was small, very small. My, my, my boys have come to work for a company in the last couple of months that has up to 120 people working in at any point in time. It's global and it's multi-millions of turnovers. It's a very different sort of situation really for them to mm. uh, assess. And I don't know what that's like because I never had that. I, did a, <laughs> yeah. I joined a different company. Because you want them to develop the way that you did and, and sort of... 
you know, learn, learn and kind of apply yourself. Well, that's right. And we took, you know, I guess subconsciously, we're, subliminally, we're teaching them values. Of, uh, it doesn't matter who they work for, whether it's SLG one day or, or inevitably other companies, they, they would have learned from my approach, my, my wife's approach about uh, discipline. I talked about that in mm. terms of, um, you know, never being late, uh, uh, adopting the rules and regulations of the environment you work in and not challenging those really. Mm. Uh, and, and working bloody hard, frankly, and I think they understand that for sure, yeah. and that's why it's been very easy to to work with them here. I think that was already in their DNA. <laughs> yes, yeah. pretty much. That's interesting, the DNA aspect of it as well, and that, that genes quickly on the because uh, your your time is precious. You're mm. a leader in this company. Uh, the Americana element to it, because yeah. I spent some time in my masters in journalism in the states. Always loved the states. There's downsides to it. There's a lot of poverty and polarity of, of, of incomes and things in the States. But there is something that's all appealed to me as a sort of a slight liberation when you're there of, of a possibility of, a, you know, if you want to go hang gliding, you can do it or whatever it might be. There's less the restrictions we talked about. Is that what appealed to you, particularly the skateboarding West Coast culture? What was your background? Well, that? My, my, my wife and I love holidaying in the States, in particular in California, in particular Palm Springs, actually. We've got oh, a particular okay. thing for that. We also have a love of mid-century modernism, which Palm Springs is the kind of epicenter yeah. of, of that kind of design code. Uh, and is it so, the Eames people, were they? They were more LA, were they? Uh, Eames, I think, was LA. Yeah. But we, so we've adopted a lot of uh, mid-century modernism in, in, in furniture and design code in, in Studio A, mixed in with a sort of urban street, kind of, um, you know, more... LA street vibe with the skateboard uh, kind of thing so there's a bit of a fusion going on there mm. but uh, the Americana and the Palm Springsy thing is definitely about escapism as well I felt it was very important when you walked into SLG's offices that you felt some detachment from what you were customary to yeah. a sense of uh, somewhere new different and, and opportunistic as well and I think the Americana helps deliver on that, really. Definitely a change of vibe from the lower end of the high street in <laughs> Cheltenham. Once you step up, it's like stepping mm. into a, a new world, which is, which is mm. great. It's been great to chat to you, Mars. And mm. just a final thought, which, which struck me, because you've been very successful here. You've done very well with the company. You've kept it in Cheltenham, which I think, or Gloucestershire, which I know you're predominantly based in Gloucester originally, which is just down the road. But you've, you've founded this local community, which I think a lot of people are proud of when anyone does well locally. But I think the message that I get is that you're trying to be a nice guy kind man and empathetic and succeeding in business at the same time is that where we're going with things at the moment you feel that it's it's kind of saying you can have and do both and actually be more productive as a company if you're if you are understanding i don't consciously uh, adopt that principle yeah it's great to hear you say that but i suppose in a way what it is i i want to be the boss uh, that um the kind of boss that i might have had when i was uh, Employed, yes, maybe that's it, and maybe I'm an amalgam of some great bosses yeah. trying to take the best of uh, those, and that would have definitely involved empathy and uh, a human touch, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's 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 what's going on. And you remember former members here as well; they've lost their lives, haven't you? As well, which I thought was actually elderly people, but it came to pass in our discussion that it was people in their thirties, which goes back to the well-being theme and, and just the importance of not just moving on too much sometimes. Absolutely, we, we had a, a very sad to have lost three members of staff during the, the recent years to um, various illnesses, uh, females, all of them actually, 25, 39 and 40 year olds. Uh, and we were able to uh, reference them, bring them into the building actually by way of a, a, a some, some graffiti that appears on, on, on one of the columns in the office where we, were, we, we tagged their names and, mm. um, and uh, 
so they're with us all the time. But that, that was a very late stage idea. It just came to us and we thought, Christ, let's just do it. Um, because we were conscious of three special people who weren't going to be able to join us. But they're kind of with us now. Great touch. Miles Dunkley, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Guys, thank you for listening uh, to the podcast as well. If you can rate it uh, on iTunes, that would be fantastic. And uh, we will uh, speak to you again very soon. Thank you.